Welcome to the Data Dive Podcast, a podcast where we share the stories of real-world data-driven applications in various industries, hear how some of the most innovative companies are being built, and much more. Today, I'm excited to have Tim Kogan on the podcast. Tim worked as an engineer for several years before co-founding Medcognetics, a company focused on expanding data and AI-driven solutions to advance healthcare. Tim is a senior data scientist and an AI and machine learning lead for Medcognetics as well. Welcome to the Data That I podcast, Tim. I'm glad to have you on. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Tell me about your background and what drew you into the data science field. Yeah. So before I talk about how I got into data science, I do want to explain what data science is from my perspective. I think there's a lot of definitions out there. And a lot of people define it different ways. So in all the teams I've worked in, software development teams, there's really two kinds of software developers that, that you tend to run across. One is what you typically think of being as a, your traditional software developer, designing software architectures, a lot of experience in various programming languages. And there's another kind of software developer, which spends a lot more time not just writing software, but working with mathematics, looking through understanding data and using that data and understanding that data to drive the code or the algorithms that they're they're writing. So that that second camp of software developer that is really writing code that's data centric and data driven, that's really what I, I think of as being a data scientist. And there's a lot of other terms out there like machine learning engineer. And I think people get very specific about the differences between, you know, data analyst, data scientist, machine learning engineer, et cetera. But in my mind, a data scientist is effectively a a type of software engineer who has a heavy focus on looking through data, understanding data, and, you know, spending time at the whiteboard, working through mathematics, that sort of thing. Uh, so with that explanation or description of what data science is, I'll sort of walk you through the the path I took through college to get involved in data science. So I actually started out at the University of Texas at Dallas as a biology major. I was a pre-med student. And my first semester, uh, I had to take calculus. And I actually discovered that I really loved calculus. That was one of my favorite courses freshman year. And it's it's interesting. I didn't really like math all that much in high school. Math was fine. You know, I did okay in math. But when I took calculus, it's it's a really powerful set of concepts, theories for understanding the world and understanding sciences themselves. So after my freshman year, I started looking to switch to either physics or engineering, something that's a little bit more math intensive than biology. And I ended up settling on biomedical engineering. And even at that time, I think I was more interested in mechanics, more mechanical engineering than anything related to software or algorithms per se. And along the way through my degree, I took another course called Signals and Systems, but it's really about signal processing. Just at a high level, what signal processing is, is it's the math and theory behind signal transmission denoising signals, generating signals. So it's very important when you look at things like AM radio transmission. How does an AM radio signal go from some station 
to the radio that's in your car. And so I found signal processing very fascinating. Around this time, I also had to take a few courses in programming. And I discovered that I really liked programming. I had to take C++, C++ but then I started teaching myself Java to write Android apps. And so uh, by the end of my undergraduate degree, signal processing and programming were really the two things that, that I was most passionate about. And I actually had an internship at Texas Instruments working with both of those things. So then moving into graduate school, I was specializing in signal processing, but I had a lot of exposure to machine learning algorithms through that signal processing track because signal processing and machine learning are, they go hand in hand a lot of times. You know, if you have some data that's noisy, you might want to filter it before feeding it straight into an algorithm, for example, or even concepts. Uh, when you look at deep learning, you talk about things like convolutional neural networks. This whole idea of convolution comes from signal processing theory and, and processing signals. So as a graduate student, I was exposed to machine learning and deep learning, and I started becoming very interested in those as well, as well and spending time understanding and developing skills in those. And so most of the jobs I've worked, I've been doing some combination of, of software and algorithm design. So from that point of view, I'd say my whole career has more or less been some kind of data science, although the, the position I'm currently in is the only time I've been officially called a data scientist in my, my position title. But you know, just one other comment to make, kind of this difference between being a software developer and a data scientist. I assume how much emphasis, how much time do you spend working with data versus you know, other things such as maybe UI or system level design. What do you think are valuable skills that you gained through undergraduate and graduate school that has helped you as a data scientist? Obviously, through both undergraduate and graduate, there's a lot of very valuable technical courses you take, fundamental mathematics, calculus, linear algebra, probability, stochastics, things that are very foundational to data science-related algorithms. So all of that is, is obviously very helpful. There's also um, going through undergraduate and graduate school, there's a lot of soft skills that you develop just for me. And I think for a lot of people, you know, being an undergraduate, it's kind of the first time you're living on your own outside of your parents' house. And there's, you know, there's just a level of maturity and understanding how to work with people that, that you gain over that time, which is obviously very valuable. But I think one, one really important lesson I learned going through school is just to, to be curious and to always be learning. Because I feel like when I was at high school, I had this conception of what I wanted to be in my career. And then halfway through college, I had a different idea of what I wanted to do. And then by the end of college, I had a different idea. And even going through graduate school, that idea continued to transform and change. Because, you know, as I learn about new technologies, I think, oh, wow, that's, that's really cool. That's something I want to invest time in and uh, learn how to do. You really, you don't know what you don't know. So I'd say, it, especially as you're younger, uh, you know, don't get too fixated on one particular thing. Have an open mind, you know, just learn. There's a lot of great YouTube channels out there where you can learn all sorts of things about different, you know, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering, and, you know, going through college, don't be afraid to take classes that are a little bit outside your expertise 
if it seems interesting, just, just go for it, learn about it. Maybe it's something that interests you long-term, maybe it isn't, but learning is never, is never wasted. Well, usually not. <laughs> yeah, for me, I've had so many different interests in my life, and all those interests culminated into my love for data science. And another important point, I think, is being open-minded to try various activities because you never know what, you know, some random activity you tried can lead into, right? And the doors it can open in the future. Yeah. And it's, you know, if you learn, if you spend time building fundamental skills, people skills on the technical side, skills around math, skills around programming, and knowing those fundamentals really well, and just always pushing yourself, always keeping an open mind. There's a lot that you can do in your career, I think. So I wanted to touch a little bit on your research with gastroenterology, where you discussed applications of deep learning in the field. So can you talk about the process of developing a deep learning model for medical imaging and how the accuracy of the model would change based on inputs from various data sets? Sure. So to answer your first question about the process of developing a deep learning model for medical imaging, medical data is pretty tricky for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, a lot of times when you're working with medical data, you find you have to learn quite a bit just to understand what you're looking at, what you're working with. You know, even as a, bi a biomedical engineering major, I had to take a couple semesters of biology. I had to take physiology. You know, I, I have a pretty decent background in, in human anatomy and physiology, but even then when I tackle or have tackled some of these different medical imaging problems, there's so much I don't know, right? I'm not a doctor. I, I don't have a thorough uh, background in some of these things. So there's a decent amount of time. I'm just learning, for example, with this project, learning about the gastrointestinal system, maybe some things I learned at one point and forgot learning about some of these diseases that we're trying to detect. So that's one aspect. There's just, there's a lot more to learn versus, you know, if you're developing an algorithm for like an autonomous vehicle, you already know how to drive. You already know what a road is. Like you, you already know all these things. But like I said, with, with medical data, you sort of have to become just a little bit of a specialist for that type of data. You have to become just a little bit of a doctor. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a very poor doctor when I, when I approach these things, but you have to uh, develop some of that knowledge. And then the other thing that's, that's really tricky, I think, is it's your model that you develop. Very quickly, it can start to pass you in performance. So, you know, let's say you're developing a model that's identifying cancer in the gastrointestinal tract. You know, like I said, I'm not a very good radiologist. I'm not very good at looking at these images sometimes and spotting cancer or polyps or whatever it is. So when you have data that's, let's say the data is not labeled or it's poorly labeled, your algorithm might tell you something like your algorithm might say, hey, this is an area of concern in this person's colon or wherever it is. And sometimes you, you don't know if the model's right or wrong. Because it, it's actually become more of an expert than you are. So it's like, well, it kind of looks like the model could be right. I don't know. So then you have to seek the opinion of a doctor who's actually experienced with that data, actually trained to look at and understand the data. And like I said, that's still a little bit different than something like autonomous driving, where, you know, if your vehicle fails to recognize a stop sign, 
you know it's made a mistake. Like we we all know what a stop sign is. We don't need to seek some stop sign expert to tell us, you know, whether the data is right or wrong or the algorithm got it wrong. So that's the challenge is the model starts becoming better than you, I think, in these medical applications, if you're not a doctor and, and you're not a specialist in that area. And then for, for your second question, how does the accuracy of the model change based on input from various data sets? That, that's definitely a challenge. I mean, that's a challenge in all machine learning. Things that people are robust to, these algorithms are not always robust to. You know, even if all of your training data is from a particular camera, particular machine, and suddenly you have data from a new camera or a new machine, there might be different resolution, different signal and noise ratio characteristics, different things that the algorithm gets tripped up on that a person wouldn't. And, and that definitely is a challenge. One of the ways that you can deal with that is sort of anticipate those differences, try to augment your data during training, or try to architect the, the model itself to be robust to some of those differences. What measures do you take to avoid overfitting your models, which is when the model you develop works so well with the training data, but cannot be applied to other data sets with similar accuracy? So that, that kind of follows up on the last question, talking about uh, data augmentation is one of these ways. So one of, the, one of the really difficult things, honestly, is you don't always know how the other data sets are going to be different than the data you're working with. So you might have to guess, and some of that might be a logical guess based on domain knowledge. You might say, well, I know that there's different types of cameras in the world that capture the same data. So I need to simulate having data from those different cameras. I need to simulate different levels of noise, maybe different contrast characteristics. Another way is if you, know, if you have domain knowledge, you can identify gaps in your training data. So for example, let's... You know, as an example, if you're building a classifier that differentiates cats from dogs, looking through your data and recognizing, wait a second, the only dog pictures I have are pugs. You know, that's, that's not good. You probably want to collect different dog breeds to include in your training data. So having that domain knowledge can help you recognize where there's gaps in your data, and then you can go out and try to fill those gaps. So what are some of the largest and maybe most unexpected challenges you've faced when doing research and how did you address those challenges? I'm actually going to answer this a little bit generically, uh, just because to an extent, every single project I've been on is in and of itself a big, challenging, uh, unexpected problem to solve. So to, you know, just take the example of gastrointestinal images and properly taking images, classifying them, identifying cancer in those images, that, that in and of itself is a big problem. And the way that you address big problems, the first thing you do is you figure out how to break it into smaller problems. And then once you've broken a big problem into smaller problems, you can look at, okay, uh, you know, this small piece, has someone else solved something similar to this? Is there an existing solution? You can do some research there. But even if there is no existing solution, now solving that smaller challenge or problem is, you know, gets you kind of one step closer to solving the overall problem. 
You worked as an engineer for several years before you co-founded Medcognetics. So tell me a little bit about the story behind that and what prompted you to transition from being an employee to pursuing entrepreneurship. Yeah, absolutely. I, this is a really, a really exciting time to be in machine learning, especially deep learning technologies, addressing some, some really big challenges that we have as a society. So at Medcognetics, we focus on particular at the moment, uh, screening mammograms. So uh, about one in eight women will develop breast cancer at some point in their life. And that, that's a huge number. So one in eight, I mean, that's all of us know, have known or will know, you know, a mom, a sister, some relative or friend uh, that's, that has to battle breast cancer. So it's a big big problem for our society. You know, we live at a really exciting time in AI where hardware, the the GPU technology we have and the deep learning software algorithm techniques we have really seem poised to solve some of these problems in a big way, whether that's in the medical imaging space or things like autonomous driving, where we can build products that are that are safer, more robust. And so that, that's really the vision of, of our company and really this vision of solving a big problem, detecting cancers earlier, treating them sooner, and really improving patient outcomes. Was there anything that you felt was kind of a signal for you to move on from your previous work experiences or was starting a company something you always envisioned doing? Um, it's, it's definitely, starting a company is definitely always something that's that's been interesting to me, but it was just right situation, right timing, uh, a lot of things coming together. Wonderful. So when trying to make good predictive models, how do you select good data to use? And also, how do you make sure that the models that you create with a particular data set will be similar in accuracy if it was developed from other data sets? So in terms of good data, good data depends you know, what you mean by good data depends a lot on what your algorithm is going to be ultimately working with in production. So basically good, good data doesn't necessarily mean good quality data. For example, if I'm developing an algorithm that's going to be running on images taken from user cell phones and my training set is a bunch of high quality professional photographs, that, that training set is technically high quality data. There are these high quality, high resolution images, but that's not necessarily good data for what I'm ultimately going to be working with, which is lower resolution, lower quality cell phone images. So good data is really data that matches the distribution of what you ultimately want to be performing on. Now, there's also the perspective that you don't know exactly what you're going to be performing on. So then Good data, if, if you don't know, and what you're going to be performing on could be a lot of things, then good data would also be data that's well-rounded. So your algorithm sees a lot of different things and is hopefully able to generalize to whatever your production time data looks like. Um, and then your second question was, how do you make sure the models that we build actually perform well if developed, if trained with other data sets? So... There's one perspective with this. So depending on how similar different data sets are, 
you may want the model to do well, whether you're training it on this data set or this data set, depending, you know, if let's say it's all the same types of data from different parts of the world, you probably don't want geography to be something that affects your algorithm performance. But, you know, there's a perspective which if the data is significantly different, you don't necessarily want a model that has the same performance on totally different data. There's this trade-off between having a model that's general, which is, you know, having a, having a general model is nice because you can use it on different data without changing it a whole lot and get good performance. But the bad part about a very general model is it takes more data to train versus a specialized model can be trained with less data. So, you know, what, one example to this is deep learning neural networks could just be assembled as fully connected, fully connected neural networks that are very general and you could feed in images or text or anything and develop the algorithm against that. But in deep learning, we've developed architectures that are more domain specific, right? So we have, we tend to have architectures that are very specific towards image and architectures that are very specific towards text, natural language processing, that sort of thing. And in general, that seems like a good trade-off to have these domain-specific architectures. And depending on how much data you have, you might even want to build architectures that are even more specific to make up for the lack of data that you have. How do you ensure that radiologists will be able to properly use the deep learning and AI models that MedCognetics develops, especially if those radiologists don't really have that much experience with data science or AI? So this is almost a fundamental engineering uh, problem or question of how do you develop something that someone can use even if they have no idea how it works. And so we, we see this in a lot of different areas. Um, there's lots of products we use on a day-to-day -day basis that you don't know how it works, you just know how to use it and what it does. And I think in general, that's the, the same challenge we have is we need to develop products that have a, a minimal learning curve. And I don't think that's too challenging. I think building out our algorithms so the output is pretty easy to understand is not too difficult. I think uh, educating doctors and knowing exactly what the algorithm does, or rather what it doesn't do, is very important. So, you know, as an example of this, you know, let's say you have a car. Uh, you know how to use your car. You know what your car can do. You don't necessarily know how it works. I mean, you, you know, I think everyone has kind of a, a general idea of how a car works. But it's important that you know things like your car doesn't float, right? So you can't drive into a lake. And you know how well it steers and, and things like that. So in, in terms of deep learning algorithms, I think it's important that radiologists know the limitations of the algorithms when it might fail and what's the proper use. So as an example, if you develop an algorithm that processes chest, chest x-rays, it's important that no one tries to use that for brain MRIs because it's probably not gonna work. So like I said, I, I think there's value in doctors and, and end users understanding how something works. I think that's a good thing in general is to be curious and understand how things work underneath and don't just take things for granted. But I think the most important thing is 
for them to know really what it does versus doesn't do. And then if they don't know how to use it, if you've designed a poor interface, then obviously it's, it's not a great product. Yeah. So you guys have designed it in a way that it's really accessible without necessarily knowing how the technology itself works. Right. How can deep learning models aid in the early detection of different diseases? I think deep learning models have um, three advantages over humans that I can think of. Um, so certainly there's many advantages, many disadvantages. But you know, one advantage that deep learning algorithms have over people is you can train an algorithm on millions, potentially billions of examples. And so then when a deep learning algorithm is looking at a new case, a new patient that it's never seen before, it's able to pull in some sense from this, this knowledge base of millions of cases, perhaps more cases than you know, a person could ever look at or memorize or understand in their lifetime. So there's an advantage there. Uh, another advantage I think deep learning algorithms have is you know, as people were sort of stuck in three to four dimensions in terms of how well we can intuitively think about concepts. And that's, you know, we live in a three-dimensional world. And I think our brains from a young age, we tend to think about things in three dimensions, but algorithms can generalize to, you know, they can process many dimensions at once. They can consider all of the facts in a way that I think our human brains struggle to do. We struggle to take in a huge volume of 100 different aspects and make sense of them all and properly weight them all. And then the last thing is algorithms never get tired. And I think you especially see this in why are humans bad drivers? You know, why do humans get into accidents? It's because we get distracted. Most people, if they are... 100% focused on the road, 100% paying attention at peak performance. It's probably hard to outperform that human. But the fact is, most of the time when we drive, we're getting distracted. We might get sleepy. Same thing goes for radiologists looking at medical images. A radiologist at peak performance is going to do very well, but it's, it's tiring, right? It's a lot of work. And algorithms never get tired. They're always operating at the same performance level. So I think between those three different things, Deep learning models do have an advantage over humans, but it's also important to keep in mind that there are other disadvantages, ways that models don't generalize well. And I think for a long time, potentially forever, right, we're going to see humans and algorithms working hand in hand for the best possible outcome. How do you see the data science and artificial intelligence applications scaling in the future, both in the radiology realm and in healthcare more broadly? There's definitely, definitely we'll see huge leaps when sort of these bigger problems are solved. Like when we can develop image recognition algorithms that can screen images at human level or maybe above human level performance, that's going to have a significant impact on the cost, the reliability of screenings. So I, I think there's sort of these very large, very well-known problems that get put in the spotlight. And I definitely see those kinds of problems addressed in the future. I think there's also a lot of, I should call it more mundane automation that'll happen. I think healthcare system, as, as well as a lot of parts of our society, 
have room for improvement just in terms of automation, making things more efficient. And I think there'll just there'll be a lot of behind the work, maybe unsung heroes solving smaller problems along the way that actually make a huge impact, even though they're you know not quite as in the spotlight. And where machine learning and artificial intelligence makes an impact is if you can automate without machine learning, that's really the best solution. There's a lot of overhead. There's a lot of development effort to create a machine learning algorithm, making sure it doesn't overfit all those things. But you do run into problems that are just, they're hard to automate without the use of a, a statistical model. So I think just traditional software engineering and some of these machine learning techniques will work hand in hand to continue to automate and make things more efficient. And then, you know, I, I got to be honest, I don't know <laughs> what's going to happen in the future. Uh, the interesting thing about healthcare is that it's very interdisciplinary. You have doctors and you have engineers who are both involved. Uh, you know, healthcare involves human physiology, biomaterials, fluid mechanics, electrical systems, there's software. And I think as people in different fields make different breakthroughs, it's, you know, we're all going to work together to transform the future of healthcare. And so I'm looking at just one very small slice of software and AI. But the, the true impact that that'll play, I think, is interrelated to these other disciplines. And so I think there's some really exciting stuff to look forward to in the future. Unfortunately, I don't know what that is, <laughs> but it'll be exciting. Thank you for coming on to the Data Dive podcast, Tim. I loved hearing about your data science journey and your perspective on the wide range of data science and AI-driven applications in healthcare. If you like this podcast, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and stay tuned for more Data Dive podcast episodes like this one. Thanks for having me.